Shopify helps businesses break sales records over the holidays with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's golo.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery and I saw the Golo commercial and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. everyone welcome to another episode of red and buried podcast i'm sarah i'm frankie and we have the excellent jack jordan with us today hello jack hi so happy to be here thank you for having me thank you for coming on thank honestly jack it's so lovely to see you i think we'll just jump straight into the bio that i've written about you because i feel like it it captures your essence very well and uh, (laughs) you can tell me afterwards if it does or doesn't but i think it does okay so Jack Jordan is a number one best-selling author. He wrote his first book at the age of 17 while he was locked away inside his house battling agoraphobia. What started as a short story to pass the time became a 100,000-word novel, and when he typed the end, he knew he'd found the career that he wanted to pursue for the rest of his life. Jack self-published his debut, his debut novel even, Anything for Her, in 2015, followed by his second, My Girl, in 2016. By the end of the year, the two titles had sold 100,000 copies combined. A Woman Scorned Before Her Eyes and Night by Night soon followed, reaching readers around the world and earning him the title The Master of the Moral Dilemma. (laughs) That's a pretty cool title. Yeah. Uh, Jack may be able to leave his house now, but that hasn't stopped him from writing. His last book, Do No Harm, was an instant Saturday Times bestseller and was shortlisted for the most recommended book in the Dead Good Reader Awards. His new thriller, Convicted, is out on the 11th of May and tells the story of a very out-of-order lawyer. That was my (laughs) little summary of it. You can use that if you like. (laughs) Wade Darling stands accused of killing his wife and teenage children as they slept and burning their house to the ground. When the case lands on barrister Neve Harper's desk, she knows it could make her career. A matter of days before the case, Neve learns that she must throw the case or the secret about her husband's disappearance will be revealed. If she doesn't, everyone she cares about will be in grave danger. Neve must make a choice, go against every principle she's ever had, or risk the lives of the people she loves. As well as being an incredibly talented author, Jack is famously beloved by everyone in the writing community. He also has a stunning collection of billowing shirts and a beautiful leather bag that I have thought about daily since Capital Crime. <laughs> so That is the best intro I've ever had. <laughs> finally, the credit I'm due. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I love that my shirt's got some credit too. I love, you know, they, they finally got the, what they deserved. <laughs> oh my God. Like, Sarah, I can't tell you. So I met Jack at Harrogate and he mm. was wearing this beautiful billowing white shirt. It was like something like Heathcliff Cathy kind of... <laughs> romance novel genius it was beautiful i've seen anything like it it. 
What about the bag? I can't believe you've not sent me a oh, photo the of the bag, Frankie. You want to see the bag? I want to see the yes. bag again. I've really, I've been looking at... Mm. Oh, it is beautiful. Stop Frankie, Martin. this is your picture for social media, by the way. <laughs> yes. oh, <it's> that <laughs> shot. <laughs> yeah, it is gorgeous. so good. I've been looking at it online, eyeing it up. I'm very, very tempted. Is it a practical bag? Do you use it a lot? So practical. Yeah, I, my, my laptop's there with me. I, and I, use, I walk around, and this is no joke, I walk around with about five books on me at any one time. Wow. <laughs> because I, I research books or you know just or re- books I'm currently reading or proofs I'm always like, every time I um, go to the hairdresser I'm going to tomorrow I have to hand <laughs> over my bag and she goes how many books have you got today she, <laughs> she has to like limber up <laughs> so, yeah, amazing very practical good to know okay I may have to treat myself but we're not here to talk about your bag yeah. <laughs> although, I, although I am thrilled to have more information on it because it's a stunner we're here to talk about you and your books. So I don't know where to start, Sarah. Do you want to talk about Do No Harm for a bit first? Or should we go straight into Convicted? Or Because also, I didn't add to that bio, the Do No Harm paperback. Is that out now? That's going to be out on the 30th of March. Amazing. It looks very good. Can't recommend it enough. I'm a bit of a whore for a crime book set in a hospital setting anyway. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I think it's because hospitals are like such uncomfortable places anyway. Mm. So setting anything in the medical world, it like adds that extra edge to it. But I mean, how did you phrase it, Frankie? Something about the, hang on. The master of the moral dilemma. That's exactly what I was going <laughs> for. Yeah. Loved it. Love a moral dilemma. What can I say? Mm-hmm. Although I always read them and I'm like, I always go straight to, I would totally lose all of my morals in that situation. Just the problem is though, no you qualms. are many times, um, Sarah has told me basically that, that she, she, she does believe she is a psychopath. And that she, she... <laughs> I mean, not entirely. I do think I do really well in prison. I've always thought, love a routine. I think I'd get... Right up there. I'd be kind of second in command to the top dog. Don't want the ultimate position, but too much stress, the privileges. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, that's not about the book. No. I want to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it will probably happen one day. The point from that is, Sarah, you wouldn't have a moral dilemma because you don't experience morals. (laughs) (laughs) You're really not selling me very well, Frankie. I I actually love that because I think when I write moral dilemmas, I love the fact that it kind of, it puts the reader in the character's shoes. And because it it does for me as the writer as well. And it's it's kind of a gift for the reader to test their own morals or lack Mm. of, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and I think that's why it creates it. So I was really lucky with Do No Harm. It was, I, I like to call it a word of mouth hit because it was people who were talking about it and sharing it with others and wanted to, it was kind of, it created like a discussion. And I think yeah. it's because it's around those, those morals and how everyone kind of read it differently and would do differently in her shoes. And I just found it yeah. so fascinating. Mm. I was in the office last week and actually the book was sitting on my desk because I'd been reading it on my commute and um, a few of the others been asking me about it. And we had a lengthy conversation about, you know, what would you do in that situation? Actually, everyone except me was really quite, oh, I don't know. What do you pick? I mean, I mean, you're further proving that hard of a choice. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? But yeah, it is. It's that sort of thing. It gets people talking, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I remember being so touched when a surgical aide got in touch and said, I've read your book and oh my God, we're talking about it in our team. So a group, a surgical team were talking about it. And so that was a real gift. Um, it's actually, for anyone who hasn't um, heard of it, how dare you? No, for anyone who hasn't <laughs> heard about it, uh, Do No Harm is essentially about a heart surgeon, Dr. Anna Jones, whose child is abducted by an organised crime ring, and she's given an ultimatum. Either she kills the patient on the operating table or she'll never see her child again. So she's having to basically choose between the love of her child and her oath to do no harm. So yeah, that's kind of the position I put Anna in as an evil, evil person. <laughs> and that's kind of the moral dilemma that everyone's been trying to pick apart and thinking about it differently. I've got to know, did the surgical aide tell you what they would do in that situation? I don't know if I can confirm or deny. (laughs) No, I think if they stay anonymous, I think the aide said that she would do something uh, similar to what might happen in the book. But then there was conflict of interest or conflict of of standpoints in the meeting room. So it's amazing how, because it's such a, it's such a, do or do or die situation because if you don't do this if you don't take a life your child's gonna die what do you because for me I I, yeah so I might think differently but my character might do differently and yeah it's it's yeah so much fun 
to write. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not fun for the character. All right. He's sounding like a psychopath now. <laughs> Sarah, we're going to get on so well. <laughs> yeah. And that, that, the moral dilemma theme, as you say, it continues in, in Convicted as well, which, as I say, I've just finished reading and thoroughly enjoyed and absolute like romp through it. Like I got through it in like two days. I just couldn't stop. It was just so compelling and, and so enjoyable. But also very, very stressful. <laughs> this poor bloody woman, poor Neve Harper, cannot get a breath, can she? Yeah. Endless stress. So evil. So, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. So, with conviction, she's kind of got that. She's got this, this another moral dilemma because I'm so fascinated mm. by them. And I loved the reaction of Do No Harm. I love getting readers talking. And so, yeah. So, with conviction and Neve Harper, I had to her in a really awful situation but instead of having not only to like save the people she loves she's also done something bad in her past so and the person who reveals this to her is kind of giving her that ultimatum so yeah. either she yeah either she throws the case and her client goes to prison or her own criminal past will be exposed and so I loved that she's got to choose between her for the freedom of her client and her own and I just I just think it's so twisted and I yeah I, lo- I love putting characters in that awful situation and that's why I write standalones because they wouldn't survive a second book <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good point <laughs> with the the moral dilemma aspect of it and that it's really interesting that, that that's kind of what compels you do, do you find it difficult to write from a different point of view? Obviously not. Or, or do you do you condone the things that the characters are doing in your books? <laughs> do you know what? It's so, it's, I've always found it so fascinating because when I, and I don't think any other writer does, well, actually, you know, some characters you do um, set out to write as horrible, but I've never mm. written a character that's meant to be quote unquote unlikable, but I just write flawed what I believe to be real characters mm. and we've all got flaws we all have and the and the beauty is when you pick up a book you can read someone's thoughts in real life we can't do that so we mm. only really see half when we we go to copy with our friend we're only really getting half the story but when, with a novel you can jump into that inner world so you get to know so much more about them so we do get to see more of the flaws we do get to see the truth behind their eyes we do get to hear them moan and groan and um and their deepest darkest thoughts um, out of desperation and fear so I, I love that. But yeah, it can be you do then deliver a character that could potentially be unlikable to some people. And I find it fascinating because I don't mm. think any writer sets out to have that. But no, I love but I love um, hopping into character shoes. And I, I as I'm writing, it's kind of from an empathetic point of view, because I do just think, well, how would I react? What would mm-hmm. I do? And I kind of just feel, feel it that way. So when I'm writing, my heart will race or you know, I've, I've cried only once in my long career, but I've only cried once. But I've cried writing a scene that was really, really uh, tense and uh, painful for the character. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's just feeling that that empathy with the character and you, and you kind of let them do anything if you're on their side. It, however dark and nefarious that side might be. Yeah. Absolutely. You've got some really interesting uh, settings. Obviously, you've got the medical setting. Mm. You've now got the legal setting. What? draws you to those is it because they're kind of professions where they they are bound by these bigger moral codes I guess Mm. than um you know like a inherently moral PA for example (laughs) might might have is that what draws you to the settings or do you come up with the setting and then work the story around it yeah totally so I mean so with doing a harm I came up with the idea when I had a procedure myself um luckily not heart surgery disturbing oh, <laughs> yeah yeah well so I I I went into uh, have this uh, procedure it wasn't that big but they had to put me under and I didn't really think about it until I was about to be wheeled into the operating theater and then to be put under and I suddenly thought to myself I don't know anyone in this room I'm just completely trusting them with my welfare it, and being the thriller writer I immediately thought oh my god all these bad things could happen <laughs> grab a pen <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> table. I let them do the procedure first I guess and then fine yeah <laughs> fair enough but then and when I came round and I, the drugs wore, uh, wore off I started scribbling <laughs> notes wondering what could have happened if the surgeon had a ulterior motive and but and also I think these settings and just like you said they have that kind of inbuilt uh morality about it we, we try and, and it's kind of how I felt when I was being wheeled into the operating theatre. I went in not knowing them, but trusting the institution, trusting that just 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 went in with trust. I don't know them at all. And so I suddenly thought, wow, what could what could actually be happening in that room? Because none of us know when we're under. Mm. And it just. Yeah. And I think when we trust an institution, which we should, and we're looked after by amazing people, which they are fascinatingly it's just down to trust that's the only thing that keeps the ball rolling so when you take that trust away it can all fall apart and as a writer 
I find that fascinating. I kind of wanted to create that shambles, as it were. <laughs> I love the idea of, you know, the medical staff potentially finding your notes when you're not discharged <laughs> yet, just lying around in your room or in your board. Yeah. Murderous surgeon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Plans. Put you on some sort of watch list. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good point, actually. It's really interesting about the whole thing about trust, because obviously with, with doctors have the Hippocratic Oath. And, you know, when you when you testify in court, you have to basically promise that you're not going to lie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is insane, isn't it? When you think about it, you're like, I promise I won't lie. <laughs> and I promise I'm not going to hurt anyone. But when I say that, I sound like a psychopath. Like I sound like I'm about yeah. to go and murder a load of people. Because <laughs> it's just mad. You're just entirely basing it on their honour. And who, as you say, you don't know these people. You don't know how honourable they are. Exactly. And also, yeah, totally right. And I think also... Mm. With the and even even with the kind of uniforms they wear in these two different professions, mm. they we kind of see them as otherworldly. So with surgeons, yeah. they've got the coat and the mask, they've got the you know everything like that. And then with um, barristers, they've got the wig and the cloak. So we kind of we see them as otherworldly and trust the powers that be. But mm. then, albeit there's power there that can be uh, misconstrued and can be uh, yeah t- twisted against them. I just yeah find it so fascinating. And also, I think I, I also found it so fascinating writing from the point of view of a defence barrister. Because mm. they have to go off of well, the, the client is innocent until proven guilty. It, they can't they can't have personal feelings about the case. So they could be sitting across from someone and think they seem pretty guilty to me, but they can't act like that. They they probably don't even let themselves think like that. They have mm. to be really methodical, and that's also kind of a really fascinating part about um, a surgeon as well. How they cut off that emotional tie to their patients or to their clients, where they have to just focus on the work. I just, yeah, fascinating. Mm, yeah, definitely. Also, I found particularly in Convicted, you're writing about a, a female protagonist in a very male, aggressive, kind of emotionless world. And there's, there's a few comments throughout the book about how Neve is a cold woman. And mm. it's kind of her navigating her, her the kind of bravado she, she puts out as you know a woman in a male-dominated industry versus how she's truly feeling inside. So uh, you've obviously got a few kind of complex female characters in your canon yeah. that you've written. And what is it about writing women in these kind of roles that appeals to you so much? Really good question. So for me, I, I was raised by a single mom and my nan. And so I've always looked up to women. I've always idolized women. I mean, my hero growing up was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. great choice <laughs> and as a gay man I feel if I'm not going to write from a gay man's perspective the thing that I feel most comfortable with is writing from a woman's perspective rather than a straight man's perspective um and that's just how I've always felt more comfortable um so I can I can feel I feel quite natural in that role I'm not sure if there's some gender fluidity there I'm not really sure but that's just how that's where my uh, how my fingers type as it were but yeah and also I think so yeah, I've been raised by strong women and and also, I think, and also as a gay man, you can kind of go into a work industry and be treated as other. You can be looked down mm. upon. You could be not respected. You can be. So it's kind of, there's actually quite a, there's parallels that I can empathize with. And so, yeah, I just, I'm always, I'm always drawn to that. One of the questions we ask every author that we interview is, if you had to be a character from one of your books, who would you be and why? I think we probably have to tell you to take the plot of the novels out of it because <laughs> otherwise you're not going to pick anyone. But from a character perspective, who do you most identify with or who do you want to be? That's a really good question. Wow. Oh, my God. But my characters go through so much hell. Um, so or they have <laughs> yeah. done before the book starts. Hmm. Good question. Yeah. OK, I think I will go with... Detective Inspector Rachel Connerty. So for anyone who has, and from Do No Harm, so if anyone who hasn't read that yet, uh, Do No Harm, it's, it's based around uh, Dr. Anna Jones, but she's also got two other main characters in that book. So first we have Dr. Anna Jones, who's going through the hell of this moral d- dilemma situation. Then we have um, her scrub nurse, Margot, who is in a, a perilous situation herself and has just found out that she's pregnant and she'll do anything to give new life to her unborn child. And then finally, we have Detective Inspector Rachel Connerty, um, who lost her child many years before, and then begins to look into the uh, potential disappearance of Dr. Anna Jones's son, um, and the, the nefarious reasons about why he's not been reported missing, for, spurned on by her own missing child and never getting over that. And so I, I think I love Detective Inspector Rachel Connerty's... Oh, uh, 
what's the word? determination to fix a wrong because she has this wrong that she's carried around with her for so many years and I think blames her for her you know, she lost her son and never got him back and she partially blames herself for that her marriage broke down because of it and I think so she's fine and she's found this case and it's kind of that's her redemption arc mm. and I love her power and she's in a she's in the police force where they're not taking this seriously and so I think she fights so hard um to have that heard and so, yeah, I, I love her willpower and I love her depth of um, secret world within her beneath the uniform, as it were. I just, I, yeah, I think she's yeah, a character I would I wouldn't I don't think I'd do a series because I, I put them through so much hell. But I think if I was <laughs> ever to return to a character or be a character, it would be Detective Inspector Rachel Connerty. Well, maybe she could pop up in another book, not maybe. necessarily a series, but cameo. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Even just in the background, we'll keep an eye out. You can arrest someone in another book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Casual mention. <laughs> so another, you did touch briefly on um, what you enjoy about writing your books, but what do you enjoy most and least about the writing process itself? Very good question. So what I love, there's a point in writing, it doesn't happen every day, and I wish it did happen every day, where you just kind of get sucked into the story you're not thinking that little voice in the back of your head saying that was a really crap sentence that was really bad you can't do this that voice that everyone has and sometimes when you're writing especially a first draft that voice can be a little bit loud but sometimes you just get so into the flow of what you're doing that that voice goes away everything around you goes away and it's just like this tunnel of just focus and you come out I I like to write in coffee shops and I'll sit there writing away and then I'll come back, I'll come out of that moment and it's been two and a half hours and everyone around me has changed. The sun's yeah. starting to go down. And it's like, it's like this kind of, yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's almost like an acid trip in a way. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that like, intense focus. I really, I really enjoy that. And it's, and you can't predict when it will happen or make it happen. It just happens. Uh, the thing I like the least, I think... Oh, that's a really, really good question. I'm trying to think of all of them. No, <laughs> no I think <laughs> pick your favorite. <laughs> I, do you know, I think, and I think a lot of writers, or actually, a lot of people in general will relate to this. But I think it's self doubt, and I think we have mm-hmm. self doubt in so many areas of our lives. Um, and I think when it's a creative pursuit, and first when you're trying to get that dream, and then when you have it, and you want to please everyone with the next book, you have that self doubt and pressure. Um, so I think uh, the, the thing I like the least is that little voice that can sometimes get a bit too loud. Um, so it's kind of the yin and yang of that situation. There's the screw it, I'll write anyway and get really focused. Or the Sundays uh, where it just doesn't flow and you've just got to take a break, go for a walk. That's usually when I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever come out of a writing session though and look at it and go, God, I fucking nailed that. That's so good. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah the flip that? side to that was awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, there's, no, there's definitely moments like that. And also what I love as well is that when I like to write a first draft, and it, I, I like it to be messy. I, I, I like, and I believe in the messy first draft. I think you're allowed to sell, you're allowed to make mess in the first draft. In the second draft, I go and I, I have at least a couple of weeks between drafts. When I go back and you think, actually, that's really good. Oh, I like that. Oh, wow. I can't believe I wrote that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's definitely moments where I'm tooting my own horn. <laughs> Brilliant. And are you a planner or are you a fly by the seats of your pants? Very good question. I like to say I'm both. I call myself a planster. Okay. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So I think I, I used to plan religiously and methodically. So it would be a whole chapter timeline from beginning to end. And then there'd be changes along the way, but I had that structure to follow. And I've also tried to write one by um, flying by the seat of my pants. And that for me is just too daunting, not knowing what's Mm -hmm. coming. So I like to mix it up a little bit because now with de- my deadlines are quite close together. Um, I write a book a year and publish a book a year. So I have to deliver. So I can't really, I think planning it out ahead of time can sometimes take a bit too much time. So I now I do a, a very rough structure where I know the characters and I know where, where and I like to plan out the acts. So I know what's going to happen. I know where the midpoint is. I've got an idea of what's going to happen. And I think I know at that time how it's going to end. Um, and then I write an act. Because also, it's really there's so much pressure when you think I've got to write a hundred thousand words now. Okay, yeah. it's there's yeah. a, that pressure is like a slap in the face sometimes. So and it's quite daunting. So instead, I think right, I'm going to write Act One. Okay, now I'm going to write Act Two up to the midpoint. Then I'm going to write the midpoint to Act Three, and it kind of just break it up into manageable chunks. 
But so each time I write an act, I've got that loose structure. But then when I get to the next stage, I'll plan a little bit ahead. But I also like to have a little bit of freedom for my re- my writers to take me, uh, my writers, my characters to take me somewhere different, give them the freedom a little bit. Yeah, I guess also because you're writing, um, as you say, about um, very specific industries and kind of works as well. So particularly in, convic- in Conviction, for example, you're writing about the British courts. And that has a very, as you said, specific set of, of rules and procedures you've got to follow and a timeline to a degree as well. So I guess you, is there a bit of a balancing act between kind of the procedural elements that you know you need to hit versus the kind of the character movement within that? That is such a good question. I am, a, when it comes to research, I'm a huge geek. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I get so into it. And I think, um, so, I mean, when I first came up with the idea for Do No Harm, I was a bit daunted because I thought, well, I'm not a heart surgeon. I don't know what, I'm, you know, I don't know that. But then I just, I thought, well, I'll read up on it and just see. And I was so fascinated by the procedures within that setting that I just got really into it. I read medical textbooks. I watched open heart surgery on YouTube. Wow. And that kind of, and learning that intel kind of, helped me pluck up the courage to write a legal thriller I'd always wanted to write. Because again, that is so that is so entrenched in rules. And readers are going to expect that. They want authenticity. Mm. And so, yeah, I had to do a lot of research on that, a lot of textbooks, a lot of autobiographies by barristers was really fascinating because you get to sit, like read the thoughts of the person under the wig. But yeah, so I, I think with the with writing it, I do the research first as I'm kind of thinking of the characters and really kind of soak it up so then when I'm writing I t- it tends to with that messy first draft I'll write out a court scene and go with what I know but then with the set with what I've learned but then the second draft and third draft and fourth draft I'll make sure that I'm hitting the points I need to hit or if there's a rule and I think okay can I bend that slightly for the age of the story uh, for instance with conviction the murder trial with the decade as I've described it in the book yeah. is held over five days in real life, it would never be held over five days. It would probably be held over six months. But I, if I wrote six months in a book, it would be 250,000 words long and no one's going to read that. <laughs> so you have to, you have that little elements of freedom when it comes to the rules, but sticking to, yeah, the main foundations of it uh, really helps me and the reader as well. So do you think at this point you could probably perform an open heart surgery? You yeah. sound qualified to me. I think it could yeah. be. I think, do you know what, when I was writing it, and um, so I wrote about three different, I think about three heart surgeries in uh, Do No Harm. And by the end of it, I was, I was feeling a bit cocky. And I thought, do you know what, <laughs> there's about a 6% chance they wouldn't die. That's pretty high, I <laughs> Good think. Good enough. That's all right. Yeah, but but we know the truth would be 10%, if that. <laughs> Well, that's still pretty good and i have to say if if sarah or i are finally caught for our crimes and sent down we will i would like you to represent me as my lawyer now i believe you have the your arguments are very well argued in conviction i feel very confident in your abilities oh well, thank you and you know and if push came to shove i'm really good friends with nadine matheson and leah middleton who have who have been or are still barristers so they can give me some Perfect. help as well we also had <laughs> helen fields on recently who is also i think we've got a pretty good defense team and actually join the team sarah. yeah so So Sarah, when you, with your psychopathic tendencies, when you do commit murder, you've got all this help. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I'm sorted. I'll be getting off no issues. They say it takes a village, you know, to really (laughs) succeed. So there you go, Sarah. I feel much better. I wasn't really concerned, to be honest. I think I'm good enough not to get caught. (gasps) See, that that sounds like a brilliant book to me. (laughs) There you go. You can write Sarah's story. No, no one's Sarah, ready you for that. Write it. You should write it. It sounds fantastic. I want to read it. All right, I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a writer. I don't have the patience. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> You're a very good interest. writer, Sarah. You just don't. It's just Sarah barely writes me messages back on WhatsApp, so I don't know how she would. <laughs> uh, well, unless that's a personal attack, could be. Very, very tired all the time, Frankie. Uh, you know, I'm old. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> another question that we ask every author. This is my favourite one, I think. What is the last book that you read and loved? Well, do you know what? When we were talking about the psychopath thing, I thought actually there's a book that you're going to love. And it's out in September and it's by an author called Joanna Wallace and it's her debut and it's You'd Look Better as a Ghost. I love that title. Imagine imagine Fleabag, but she's a blood-splattered sociopath wielding a hammer. Perfect. That's going on the TBR. Yeah. And it's so... So basically it's about a... um, 
female serial killer, but the and the the, the crimes that she commits. But oh my god, the internal monologue is so funny. It's so <laughs> funny. So she goes to a grief counselor, um, and, and it's in a group setting. And let's just say that one by one, they may not survive. It's just so, so funny. And I highly recommend it to anyone who loves the serial killer thriller. Brilliant. Because, I mean, understandably, humour is sorely lacking in a lot of the crime thriller books. Definitely. Which I get, but it's nice to get a bit of brevity in there as well. Mm. Totally. We need, I mean, mine are always so um, ride or die I can't really, I, I wish I I wish I could put some jokes in there. And it's just, it's, that's something that I think. So when I read a book that's got that edge, I just love it. And I think also, and I, I think um, other writers might agree with this. Sometimes we write stories that we know and love, but we also, we keep little elements of stories that we like to read as readers. So mm. like there's certain elements we read. So I love historical fiction when I read for, for pleasure. But I'd never write it because it would take that because then it would become work. And I love that mm, as, yeah. me as a reader. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it'd be a bit jarring if you'd thrown a few puns into the middle of <laughs> do no harm, say. So I, I think right, right decision there. But scalpel <laughs> butterfingers. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you um, have someone like slip on a banana peel as they're walking into court yeah. or something like these kind of, yeah. you know, this humor translates. I think it could work. It's like to think about. <laughs> do you know what? The next book, I'm going to try it. Brilliant. Can't wait. <laughs> we'll be looking out for it. We're going to hold you to it. Then Hill murders or something. <laughs> it sounds like you read quite a varied mix beyond just typically do you read beyond just crime or is it tend to be where you your heart lies the most? Really good question. So with with crime and thriller, that's now very work related for me. So I'm mm. very lucky that I read a lot, I get a lot of proofs in advance. So I read a lot for my friends and I read a lot for authors um, that are just coming up and I haven't met before, but excited to read their books. And also when I'm reading for research, I read a lot about crime and I read a lot of nonfiction. And also when I read thrillers, even if they are absolutely amazing, I'm thinking of it through a work lens. I'm mm. analysing their structure. I'm thinking, oh, that was so clever how they did that. I'm trying to understand it. So then when I read for, uh, in quotes, pleasure, because it's always pleasurable. <laughs> but when I read for just like me time, I love, like my my go-to author is Sarah Waters. I love, like Fingersmith by Sarah Waters is one of my favourite books ever. Uh, or Memoirs of a Geisha by Arthur Golden or anything oh, that is... love it. Yeah, anyone who's going through hell, but usually for a sweeping landscape um, or a, a historical time that I find fascinating and just watching them fight their way through it. I love, and I, and I usually only read about female protagonists, actually. Now that we talked about the writing thing, I, I'm only yeah. usually drawn to stories about women or queer stories. So yeah, so that's usually my, my little... Yeah, so when I go into bed at night, I'm either reading a proof or I'm reading a, uh, yeah, a guilty pleasure um, or not so guilty, just a very pleasurable historical fiction novel. Yeah, no such thing as a guilty pleasure book. Yeah, we've got. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why we say that because it's so not true, no. is it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I say that. I think Frankie would say that my love of Harry Potter should be a very guilty pleasure. Well, that's more because of the later developments within that particular author shall we say that I think yeah. it's a guilty pleasure yeah. but but to be fair I did always call you a nerd for that actually when before that all came out so maybe I'm inconsistent but a child of the 90s come yeah, on yeah that I was too but whatever well why don't why don't I drag you over to the Hunger Games side because that was always my thing so yeah maybe maybe you can That's get better you, you, yeah you can fangirl with Hunger me Games. over Hunger Games okay yeah I actually re-watched the second film yesterday and thought I must reread the books because mm. so much better Hell are in your favour, Sarah. There you go. And so I'm also really interested. That's something actually I think we should probably start asking people more, Sarah, when we speak to authors is what was it about writing crime fiction that appeals to you? Like why, where did, out of all the genres, why crime? Yeah. That's another really good question. Oh, so I'm fire, man. You are. <laughs> I, so do you know what? I think when I was first started writing, so yes, you kind of mentioned um, earlier, so I, in that amazing bio uh, that I'm going to demand is read ever, ever <laughs> on my dying day. Have it um, laminated, <laughs> handed out at parties. and Framed. Yeah. Framed. Perfect. <laughs> Tattooed. Yeah. <laughs> I started with agoraphobia. So I come from a, um, working class background and and I, I think it's how we treat creative pursuits as well uh, in society I never thought that writing a book was something I could do or a profession that I could do um so I loved writing as a kid but then I put it aside because you know I think we're, we're taught not to take these things seriously but then when I um had agoraphobia at the age of 17 and I was locked in my house for a year I started writing that short story to pass the time and found my love of that or rather acknowledged my love of that and then just completely fell in love with it. 
but I didn't have, but I had a really poor education. So I had to, when I was writing, I had to teach myself spelling, grammar, punctuation, and over and writing book after book after book. Uh, Anything for her was my day published debut. It was actually the fifth book I wrote. So I was writing along the way to learn my craft and learn. My, oh, that sounds so wanky, craft. <laughs> no, you know what it's I mean? True, yeah. Yes. But yeah, learn how to get those. Well, yeah, just learn the industry as well as learn what I need to learn as a writer. And I never started thinking, I never started out thinking I'm going to write crime. I just thought I'm going to write a story about a character and usually something went wrong and it was usually a crime or my stories always had a dark edge to them. And so by the time I got to my uh, debut, I think I'd found my brand. I think I'd found my avenue and my genre. And I think that's where everything kind of fell into place. And it was, I need to write about crime. So it happened organically. It wasn't that you sort stepped out to write a crime book specifically. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, so I think, and then I had my self-publishing career and then I had my um, publishing career uh, with my first publisher, my first agent. And then so 10 years, I wrote Do No Harm 10 years after I started. So this is, I've brushed over very quickly, a very long uh, decade of striving and striving. And then I was kind of at a dip in my career. I'd sold lots. Um, I had a publishing deal. And then I found myself without a publisher, without an agent, 10 years after I'd started. And then the uh, lockdown happened and I found myself stuck in the house again. And it was this really weird cyclical moment. And I thought, okay, I get to do something that I, yeah, I get to write a story that I really want to write. I get to explore something new and different and this book could be for me. And I wrote Do No Harm. And then, yeah, every, as they say, the rest is history. And it's been amazing ever since. God, that's such a healthy way to have got through lockdown. <laughs> yeah. You've done better than most of us. Oh, I did also I did also bake lots of festive goods, not in the Ooh. festive season. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so Halloween cookies and Christmas cookies in like September. And it's must. Yeah. These difficult times. Yeah, that's still pretty good. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. And I think also you're clearly an incredibly strong and resilient person. You've been through some very difficult periods and you've written through it and, you know, come back. That, that's incredible. You must, be incredible. you must be very proud of yourself. If you're not, it should be. Oh, thank you. No, yeah, no, I am proud of myself. And I think, um, I think a lot of uh, writers will relate to that as well in that I think in this industry, you have to be resilient because the nature of the beast is the word no. You're going to get rejected 2,000 times before you get one yes. And it continues throughout your career. It doesn't happen before you sign and then everything's golden. You get rejected, like, even when you're at the top of your game, you still get rejected from a certain country they don't want to publish or certain shops they're not going to stock it. You just get rejections all the time. And so I think it's a real good practice to be that, lean into that resilience. And also, I think it's how you take rejection as well. I think some people can use rejection to, as, a, with, as a stick to beat themselves with, and which we all are guilty of doing. I do that as well. Or you can use that as fire to prove them wrong. And I found that so beneficial. I mean, when I used to, when I, I didn't have a good education, so when I turned, and I couldn't spell. So when I turned around and told people I was going to write a book, people laughed. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to prove them wrong. Yeah. I could spell fuck you. And yeah, and so I think that resilience of I'm going to prove you wrong and actually you know, believe it, I think self-worth is so important. And I think, yeah, I think it all, I think a lot of creative pursuits, you have to have that. And because that, that's usually the thing that's keeping you going because everyone else is saying no until they finally say yes. Yeah. And to self-publish as well. I mean, that that is, you know, there's a weird kind of snobbery around self-publishing sometimes, but actually... Mm-hmm. I think it shows incredible strength and belief in what you're doing. You're like, I'm putting this out there and I'm going to prove to people that it's worth a read. And clearly it has been for you. It's been incredibly successful. How was that experience for you versus being in the more traditional frame now? Yeah. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah. And I know I totally agree. I think, and also I think there's different ways to self-publish as well. So I think for me, I approached it like a business. So I thought, okay, I'm going to create my own business and I'm going to create my own brand and this is going to be a success. That's how I kind of went into it. Probably quite delusionally. <laughs> it worked. So. <laughs> so I did lots of research on the industry. I was kind of looking at what the traditional publishers were doing for their list and then uh, scaling it to my budget. And that budget was getting a loan from the bank. Like I, I treated it like a business. And um, so I had cover designers. I had copy editors. I had uh, typesetters. I had, wow. uh, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I kind of really treated it like my own mini business. And yeah, I was leaned into the marketing and promotion and created my social media platforms. And re- and I also, I think, and it's sometimes you do have to acknowledge luck as well. It was a really good time for self-publishing. It was in, around 2015, there was that real boom of even publishers were taking it seriously. Like traditional publishers, they were looking and thinking, oh, what's going on? That mm-hmm. was when the heads really started turning. 
And so I can I could kind of lean into that. And I also saw self-published authors like Rachel Abbott and authors like that at the time that still are doing amazingly, but were doing really, really well off their own back. And my route was always, well, I'm going to get published uh, myself and then get traditional publishing. That was always my goal. And luckily it worked out that way. So I had, you know, after my first book, I had a publisher approach me. And then by my second book, I had more publishers approach me. And so, yeah, and then I got in that way. So I think sometimes when the industry says no, you just, they, or they shut the door, you just have to find a window. Screw you. I'm going to do it myself then. Exactly. You want something done right. That's good. Yeah, definitely. God, you are like the most well-balanced person I've ever spoken to, I think. Oh, I'm also, we're all a bit crazy. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> And I love therapy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. So at this point, obviously, you've got, got Do No Harm in paperback. You've got Conviction coming out very, very soon. At this point, it's come out. I think I'm gonna, this episode will come out just before your publication date so wow. that people can pre-order. And are you working on your next book at the moment? If you're one book a year turnaround? Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really exciting. It's, it, there's some new ground I'm exploring. But within, um, I love the moral dilemma. So I'm going to, and I love the title master of the moral dilemma. So I'm going to hang on to that as long as I can. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, I haven't told anyone about it, but would you like me to tell you a little bit about it? We allowed to hear a little bit about it, just please. Um, So it is about a mother and father whose child was killed and the man who did it went to prison. He's now been released and they are going to drive across the American desert to hunt him down and exact revenge that they think is fair. But the moral twist is the mother is the one who wants to hunt him down and uh, her husband wants to protect her from doing that because otherwise he'll lose his wife forever. So essentially, he's going to have to protect the man who killed his child to save his wife from herself. Oh, that is, that sounds good. I can't put jokes in there, can I, Sarah? (laughs) You really can't. And also, I mean, that sounds like quite a depressing world to live in. Like, dark. dark. Maybe maybe a joke would lighten her up a little bit. Like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of an approach. There isn't, I mean, I'm not good at appropriate humor at the best of times. I'm not sure where this would fit. Uh... (laughs) But but the the title will be Redemption. So that will hopefully be a, that's hopefully a, a good nod to their arc. Of what could, what could be. When are you aiming for publication? So that will be next year, I think. <gasps> okay. Yeah. Oh, a long time to wait, but okay. <laughs> You'll have to come back for that one, please. So oh, definitely. About it. Definitely. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, because you've promised to slip a joke in there. So. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll end it with like knock knock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> knock knock. Who's there? The guy that killed your kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's not funny. <laughs> lol yeah lol. i'm gonna try my best i can't wait <laughs> one job frankie sarah you know what's about to happen Sarah, you have to do one no you do it I'm so well insist. frankie asks this question every interview and she nails it so the first the... all right okay jack i'm very sorry to have to break this news to you but unfortunately you have committed a very heinous crime perhaps in the nature of the crime, one of the crimes from your books, you force your poor, unsuspecting characters to go through. You've committed one and it's so bad that you've actually been sentenced to death. (laughs) So first of all, I want to ask, what crime do you think you've committed to warrant this this, uh, punishment? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I'm quite clumsy. So I think I've caused like a massive catastrophe by falling over or clicking a switch or something. Oh, wow. But maybe I've had this real evil turn and I pretended it was my clumsiness when really I had to do something. He's writing a book as we speak to him. Do you hear yeah. that? This is all part of <laughs> the character. it out. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Write that down. Uh, okay. So you've killed a lot of people by accident. Wink, mm. wink, nudge, nudge. Okay. I can see why you'd be a threat to society and that you need to be killed. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. It was the right decision. Yeah, no, well done, everyone. That was a very solid (laughs) conviction. On our part, conviction, hey, you said the name. Okay, so you've killed a lot of people by mistake um, and you've been sentenced (laughs) to death. But the good news is to, to make, you know, we can't put a joke in here, but what we can do is give you the death row meal of your dreams. What would your order be? 
That's really good. Do you know what? I was thinking about this today because I love food. And mm. I and so any question about food is right up my street. You've come to the right place, Jack. And I was, yes. I was torn between two. We can do two for you. Do you know what? I'll let you have two meals. One can be a starter. One can be a... Yeah, however one you want does it. Ha- one also does have two sides. Okay, well, let's just go for it. <laughs> to the banquet. A smorgasbord. <laughs> to be fair, I think when we... Chris Whitaker, who was our first ever guest, I think he had about 30 courses by the time he was done. So I think you're allowed. We'll allow this. Go on, Jack. That, Chris, that's a banquet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a banquet. <laughs> uh, okay, so there's the kind of the nostalgic dish, which is... I mean, I'm vegan now, but if I'm on my death row, I'm probably going to go vegetarian for this one last meal. And it's one that my nan would make me. And it's really simple, really easy. You're probably going to think it's gross, but it, it just it hits that wait. nostalgia button. It's a pasta dish and the sauce is cream of mushroom soup with just salt and pepper. And on top, you put grated red Leicester and a lot of it. It mm. melts together. It's like this amazing thing. It's just, ah, oh. and it just reminds me of home in a really weird way. So that's the nostalgic one. I was going to say, interestingly, the the, tom- the, the mushroom soup thing, my mum used to do a pasta bake with mushroom soup and tuna and cheese. Oh. And she did like a tuna pasta my bake My best friend's mum does that, did that. Oh, this must yeah. be of its time, perhaps. Tuna, cream of mushroom soup, crisps on top as well. Crisps oh. with the cheese, yeah. Ooh. Cheese and onion crisps crumbled up on top with grated cheese over that. You're my crowd. You're my crowd because this is <laughs> yeah, just yeah. perfect. Welcome. Yes, that is a really comforting dish. I can totally see the appeal of that. Okay, so that's the starter then. Yeah, and then the then the, <laughs> the one that I yeah the pasta <laughs> yeah. course yeah. it should be its own in its in, in its entirety. We should just have a pasta course. Agreed. A starter main pasta dessert pasta. <laughs> <laughs> starter pasta main pasta pasta pasta. This is definitely my happy place. Yeah. So yeah, and then the other one would be there's a restaurant in my hometown um, in Colchester called. Uh, the North Hill Noodle Bar, and they have this vegetable rendang dish, mm. and it's basically just like this really creamy curry, uh, but it's not hot. Even though I like hot food, but it's not hot. It's just like coconut uh, milk base. It's just phenomenal with a mm. side of vegetable rolls and another side of bok choy with garlic and soy sauce. Oh. Nice. Oh, it's, yes. it's just so good. And again, that's comforting. That's warm. That's like got lots of flavour. And, and they yeah. give you big portions. Like I don't. Mm. I'm not a fan of a small a small dish. No. Like you know the really posh restaurants where it's like here's like, here's yeah. your main course and it's the size of a ten pence piece and it's like it looks <laughs> lovely but I'm hungry looking at it. I yeah. want. I want. Yeah. Yeah. I want a big old dish. Oh, that I would be happy with both of those dishes. They sound incredible. Mm. What about dessert? Oh, dessert. I didn't think of dessert. Okay. Well, do you know what? I love cake. So I think anything... Oh, actually, do you know what? And this is going to be really big-headed. But I make a really... So are they going to let me make my dessert? Yeah, if you want. We'll let you yeah. in the kitchen. We'll take away the knives and stuff, obviously. But Yeah, um, yeah. Accidentally yeah. fall with one. Yeah. <laughs> accidentally Straight escape. into someone, yeah. <laughs> accidentally shiv someone. <laughs> I, so it's, I make this pretty epic three-tier coffee and walnut cake. Oh, yes. I I started it in lockdown, actually. And oh, my God, I put on about a stone in two weeks because (laughs) I just ate it and ate it and made it and made it. Oh, my, it is just so good. Oh, I'll share the recipe with you if you want. Yes, please. Oh, it's amazing. To be honest, I don't like walnut or coffee, so it's not for me. But I am curious about the layering aspects of here. So what are we talking? So it's just three cakes on top of one. And they're huge. It's literally like, it's literally from the top of my head to my shoulders. It was actually too big for the tin. So my cake tin. So I had to like make a fake little fence around the cake of tinfoil and then put the lid on top. It was so huge. Wow. And then I could Glorious. do like I could do like the um Matilda move of a Bruce Bogtrotter and just eat the whole thing. Amazing. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, that's that could be how left you're to sentenced lose. to death. We just do it via the cake. Death by cake. That's mm. how I want to die. That's okay. how I want to die. We're taking requests, so that's fine. That's yeah. <laughs> the method of which you were dispatched. Okay, I would, I would admit to my crimes that I said I did accidentally if they let me die like that. <laughs> that seems like a really good compromise. They should do that in prisons. I reckon they'd get a lot higher <laughs> confession rate if they did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, we need, some re- we need some reform in our legal system <laughs> to get these modern thoughts in. I'll write it. <laughs> Thank you, please. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so you have now eaten your cake. You've had your cake and eaten it. <laughs> and sarah i hand to you well this isn't quite as exciting as all the cake i'm afraid but um so you're dead you're gone (laughs) gorged on cake but one final mercy we're gonna let you be buried with a book any book you like what book are you taking with you that's really good question i think 
the book that kind of started it all off for me and gave me that little idea in the back of my head that I was a writer before I let myself believe it at 17. It, and it was uh, Noughts and Crosses by Minori Blackman. It's a good one. I just remember finishing that book and thinking of it as a writer, not just a reader. I was shocked as a reader and I was just like flabbergasted. And I think I sat there for about 30 minutes processing this amazing story. And then, but it also taught, it was the first story that made me realize that I could write tragedy. I could write, there's so many things, it just opened my mind to the idea of story, what stories I could tell. Mm. And yeah, so I've always had a real soft spot for that and Mallory and that series. And so yeah, I had knots and crosses. Okay. Nice answer. We'll put the whole series in your coffin if you want to pad it out. I was so hoping you were going to say that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Line the coffin with it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was already greedy with like two main dishes and a whole cake. So I didn't want to say going to have the whole series, but I'll take it. <laughs> we can give you a double. Do they do double coffins that you could like put in the extra stuff? I don't know. Do they do that? They must do, surely. A book coffin. Well, yeah. I like a book it. Coffin. A coffin made of books. Shelves oh, no. built Now in. we're talking. Now we're talking. That's, yeah. It's not a waste to die. It sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be a bit dark and confined, but at least you've got good stuff to read and eat. Yeah, I think I, I think I'm the first person who now wants to be buried alive. <laughs> <laughs> With your cake and your books. Yeah, sounds perfect. Sounds good to me. What a way we'll to sort go. It. Yeah. Oh, well, Jack. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming and having a little chat with us about your books. So exciting to that conviction is going to be out very soon and that people can get the paperback of Do No Harm. So thank you for your time. Oh, no, thank you. It's been so much fun. Thank you for having me. You've been an absolute delight. And yeah, it's just been so much fun. Amazing. You know, and where can people find you on social media? So on Instagram, I am Jack Jordan underscore author and the same on TikTok. And on Twitter, I am Jack Jordan Books. Oh, I'm going to follow you on TikTok. I'm fascinated to see what people are doing on TikTok because I love it. Yeah. How is that going for you? I, I've done well on there. I've gone viral, which was really fun. But um, of course, I video editing videos takes up a lot of time. So I, I kind of I concentrate on it and then I take a break and I concentrate on it. But when I do, it's fun. So follow. <laughs> OK, definitely going to follow. Do that straight away. And Frankie, where can people find us on social media? I have to get this in because I can never remember our podcast <laughs> handles <laughs> or the name. Every time we record, I think I'm not going to mention it this month because people are going to be annoyed at me soon for going on about it all the time. But yes, yeah, Sarah, our podcast was called Dead and Buried for like ages. She couldn't find us because she was searching for the wrong name of the wrong <laughs> podcast. Uh, Sarah, people can find us at Red and Buried Podcast on uh, Twitter and Instagram. We do not have TikTok yet, but perhaps we can convince Sarah to do some fun dances or something. Imagine. I would love to. I'm imagining it. It's looking great. I think we can do this. A a job for me at some point. (laughs) I am invested. There you go. We've got one follower confirmed. Okay. All right. We'll see. Thank you so much again, Jack. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon with another author interview. We've got some really good ones lined up over the next few months. Not that this wasn't the best, but, you know, it's going to be hard to follow. If anything, things are going up from here. Exactly. So subscribe and, uh, yeah, come and listen to Talking Books with us. That was a weird way to end it. I'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Do you believe in the existence of X-Files podcasts? Then the truth is in here. I'm Tony. I'm Sarah. I'm Carl. And I'm Armal Drake. And the X-Cast is devoted to all things X-Files, such as in-depth episode discussions. I love the eighth season being like, no, you're saying goodbye. And that's something pop culture doesn't do enough. Interviews with many of the cast and crew from the show. I had to audition repeatedly. I mean, I went in, I read for Chris and Frank... Uh, or I think, I, no, at first I read for the casting director, Rick, and then I made it past that hurdle and read for Chris and Frank, had a lovely meeting with them. And special roundtable chats, commentaries, and fun bonus episodes. But this this is this is great, Mulder just having no idea what's going on. On this beautiful boat with people yeah. not really speaking uh, English. You can find us on the We Made This podcast network. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast players. We'll see you in the basement. But until then, trust no one.